So he's writing to the Corinthians about a specific event that happened, and we don't know exactly what that is. But as he's talking about God's comforting, and he's telling these people at at Corinth, he's, he's being very transparent and open and saying that we went through something that we despaired of our life. It was, it was the most intense thing that we could have possibly gone through. So in verse 9, he says, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Isn't that interesting? So his hope that he tags on to his confidence is the, the hope and the confidence that's built around Jesus raising from the dead. So he looks at the resurrection of Christ, and of course he'd be thinking about the sufferings of Christ, the cross, and all that went into that. And then he'd look at that and say, well, Christ defeated death. He overcame his sufferings. And he'd also know that the glory would come through the sufferings not around the sufferings, not around the tribulation. And so through what he was going through, he had this amazing confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, he says, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So he now credits the prayers of those in Corinth for helping them get through their difficult situation. So He's saying that we have the utmost confidence that God will deliver us, that we trust in God, our hope is in God, in nothing else. We are completely bankrupt of any trust in anything else, and our trust fully rests in God, and that's based on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Because of what we know and seen of Christ, we know that we're on the right track when we're going through difficulties we know we're partakers of the sufferings of Christ and as we go through this he's telling the Corinthians your prayers sustained us how important is it then for us to pray for one another for us to pray for other believers that are ministering in other places that we know of it is vital here you see the the participation of people, of believers in the work of God here. And Paul can't stop thanking them enough for praying, and he attributes their strength that they had in going through the the trouble that they went through to the prayers of those in Corinth. So he goes on in verse 12, he says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity 
and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. Also, as also you have understood us in part, that we were your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. So now, Paul, you see him defending his credentials, and he's pointing to the way that he came to the Corinthians, that his, his ministry style, if you will, was described as simple and sincere. What he's getting at is, when he says simple, he's referring to the fact that it was single. It was one-minded. He wasn't trying to look good for the people or change his message to be more popular or to be more relevant. He had a message given by God and he stuck to it and that's all he did. And he was sincere about how he did that. In other words, that when he came to them, he didn't have other motives. His only motive was that they would know Christ. And he was willing to suffer whatever was necessary himself so that they would come to know Christ. And that was his ministry style. So again, think about that ministry style in the background of what was going on in Corinth. Something where simpleness, you might want to say plain or something not flashy or gimmicky, where he could point to and prove that he didn't have any other agenda or any other thing that he was trying to do. And not only that, that he wasn't coming in his own strength or power or talent or ability. He, he would even say, I didn't come with persuasive words. In other words, I didn't use really high oratory skills that was popular in Corinth and in Greece. But I said, when I came, it was a demonstration of the power of God. So he really refrained or pulled back from trying to make any type of show or any type of production out of what he's doing so that God would get the glory. And that's really the message that he's trying to get to those in Corinth who are being taught by false teachers that Paul was too average and unimpressive. So in verse 15, he says, in, in this Confidence. That was his confidence. I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. So Paul had a plan to visit them twice. That's what he was talking about. But he says in verse 16, my plan was to pass 
by way of you to Macedonia. So he's going to Macedonia from Ephesus, and he was planning on stopping by Corinth. And then it says to come again from Macedonia. So when he's coming back from Macedonia, he's going to stop by there again and to be helped by you and or on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should... Be, there should be yes, yes, and no, no. So what's going on there? So he was being attacked by false teachers in Corinth saying that Paul made these plans to come to you twice and he didn't. What kind of apostle is that? They're saying he's fickle. He doesn't know he's just all over the place. He's just winging it. And he, and he lied. That's what they said. He lied to you. He said he was going to come, but he didn't. So Paul's addressing that. And he's saying, yeah, that was my plan. But he, then he says, uh, I'm, I'm not a yes guy and no guy. In other words, I'm not double-minded where I'm saying yes and no, yes and no, back and forth, back and forth. So he's addressing that issue. And he's saying, I'm, that's not... What's going on here? I'm not double-minded. But here's what's going on in verse 18. He says, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. That's not what was happening. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus and Timothy, those were Paul's uh, helpers or companions in the ministry, it wasn't yes and no, but in him, in Christ, it was yes. So he's, you see what he's doing there? This is really helpful for us because it, it tells us that we can make our plans and we can be even prayerful about things which he's point out we should be prayerful about every single thing we do. But he's saying God might change the plan. Or my understanding of what God was doing, it might be different. So all of God's promises, they're all yes. So I didn't go to you like I initially intended because I was following what God was telling me and in God all his promises are yes so you're saying I'm a I say yes and no yes no I'm double-minded but this was a process of me seeking the Lord me understanding what his will is and when I understood what his will is his will was not for me to go again and so we're following the promises of God you know what this means is we need to give a lot of grace towards one another. We need to understand that no one perfectly hears from God. We need to understand that people in all aspects 
of church ministry and ministry in general are going to make mistakes, are fallible, are going to trip up. And so we need to be able to give grace to one another. The false prophets were using this as an opportunity to hold Paul under or over this fire of him going through the process of discovering God's will. What we can say about Paul is he cared more about what God's will is than what people may have thought of him for following God's will. So he is willing to upset them because it wasn't God's will. He was willing to go through persecution or people being mad at him. Imagine all the people mad at Paul. They're always mad at him, seems like. And even his own people, they're mad at him. And, and so, so he's saying, I'm following the Lord the best I know how. And please understand, God's promises are all yes. But us as infallible human beings, as we seek the Lord, we may have our plans, but at the end of the day, God is going to direct our steps. And it's proper to make plans. It's good to make plans, but we have to be flexible in our plans to let God change our plans or redirect our plans. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians is, look, you got to understand, you got to understand I'm following the Lord's will and we need to have grace upon one another. He's saying, God's not double-minded. I'm not double-minded. I'm just trying to follow what the will of the Lord is. So in verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So that's why it's so important to seek the will of God and when we know what it is to follow it. And when God does something different than we thought it was going to be, to follow that. Because what's at stake here is the glory of God. So that means when God is laying out his plan for us, and we're following his plan, then he is glorified in that plan. And so the priority is to seek God's will, to surrender our will, and to take steps in what we understand and know what God's will is, but at the same time, understanding that it may go a little bit different way than we initially thought. And that's okay too. But at the end of the day, we can use as a guide or a judge, is God being glorified in this? That's, that's where the, the glory of the Lord is, is in our obedience to his will. So verse 21 says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee... Moreover, I call God as witness against my, my soul, 
that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So Paul is telling us that if he were to go there in person the second time, it would have been very confrontational, and it already has been confrontational. And so he's saying that in this situation, it's better that we didn't go and have another confrontation. It's better that I write you a letter in this. And then that amazing verse at the end. If you think about our interaction with one another and our interaction in ministry and church work, it's to be there for one another to help one another with their joy. Because we're fellow workers of joy. Now that means a lot of different things. We'll see more as we go on. But in a sense, there should be much joy in serving the Lord. There should be much joy in the house of the Lord. There should be much joy in our interactions with one another and our relationships with one another. Paul was having trouble with the Corinthians in that endeavor, and so he lays that out there, that the joy of the Lord is so important in the work of the Lord. Chapter 2, he says, But I determined within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me. So this has to do with an interaction that Paul had with an individual after 1 Corinthians was written, before 2 Corinthians was written, where he went there and he had an interaction. And that in that interaction, it was a confrontational interaction, a Interaction where he had to confront somebody about the sin that was happening and he had to do it in person. And he's saying, it's better that I don't go back again in person, but I'm writing you a letter. He's being sensitive to the situation. So in verse 3, he says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. So this is how we know there's another letter that was written that we don't have, a tearful, sorrowful letter Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So what he's saying is his confrontation 
was needed because he loved them so much. So sometimes we think love should be without confrontation, but here we see love sometimes necessitates confrontation. And the hope is receiving of that confrontation to the betterment of the person being confronted about their sin so that that person can walk with the Lord. And then the fellowship is restored. So that's what he is talking about. Verse 5, he says, But any, if, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So this shows how one person's sin can affect a whole congregation of people. He says, not to be too severe, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So most of the church was behind this confrontation and this rebuke to be what we'd consider church discipline or, you know, if someone is in sin, you talk to them about it and you ask, pray, ask and pray that they'd repent of their sins. If they don't, then you take someone else to confront them and you go at it again. If they don't, then you bring it before the church. If they don't repent, then they're told to leave the fellowship. And here we see why that's so important, because unrepentant sin within a fellowship will leaven out the whole body of Christ. And so this happened. This process happened. He's telling us this is what happened there. And he said it was sufficient for such a man. So was that the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that was having an incestuous relationship with his uh, father's wife. We don't know, but maybe that was it. And they said, look, you're sinning. You must repent of this sin. This is wrong. Was it that? It might be that. It might be something else. But in verse 7, it says, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So this tells us that whoever was rebuked for their sin, they actually did repent. But it wasn't until after they were put out of the church. And that worked. They miss the fellowship. They miss the body of Christ, the love of the body of Christ, the 
fellowship, the worship. And this person repented, but now he's saying, there, now you have to take this person back and you have to forgive this person. So that's the other part of it, is receiving one who has sinned back into the fellowship with open arms rejoicing at their repentance. He says if you continue to cut him off and be too harsh, Satan's going to have a field day on this person. This person is going to be destroyed by Satan if that person doesn't receive the forgiveness of the body of Christ based on their repentance from their sin. He's saying bring this person back in like the prodigal son with open arms. Bring them back in. Love on them. Restore them. Then in verse 12, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So as he's mentioning these different places, he's talking about how God had moved him to different locations, opening different doors for him. He was supposed to meet Titus in Troas to get a report of what was going on in Corinth, but at the moment Titus wasn't there, but God used it and gave him an opportunity there. And so he saw everything in light of an opportunity. This is an opportunity to preach the gospel. This is an open door to share the gospel. Not going like I thought it was, but it's going like God wanted it to. So you see him being flexible there. You see him saying, well, God redirect my steps and gave me an open door and I was able to preach the gospel. So what was so important about Paul being flexible is he wasn't married to his plan. He was married to God's open doors that gave him the opportunity to preach the gospel. And he didn't see his plan as such where it was so important that if, if it didn't happen, people wouldn't get saved. He understood that God was directing his steps the whole way, and there may be things that he didn't understand and he didn't know, but as God got him there, he gave him the opportunity to preach the gospel. And because that was what he was all about, God's plan, not his own plan, he was able to just go with the flow of what God was doing, understanding God must have a bigger plan than I do. God must be doing a new thing or a different thing. And as he went in verse 15, he says, we're the fragrance of Christ. He's uh, alluding to a, a Roman parade, a Roman triumphant, triumphant entry into their city that they came from after they had got a military victory, there'd be a parade for them back into the city. And in that parade back into the city, they would have uh, aromas 
so that there'd be this wonderful aroma of victory. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying wherever we go, there's this aroma of victory. Why is he saying that? Because because of Christ's death and resurrection, he has already won. He is already victorious. So wherever he went and whatever he did, he was he was going in victory already, not to get victory. He was going in victory. So because of that, he's saying wherever we go is the aroma of Christ, the aroma of victory. Verse 15, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So he's saying, I I don't go selling something. I go proclaiming something that has already happened. And because of that, when I go, you know that fragrance, when they would enter into a town because of their victory and it'd be sweet? Well, they'd also have with them prisoners from their conquest. And that aroma wouldn't be too sweet to them because it would speak of their death. And that's what he's saying. Wherever we go, because of who we are and the Holy Spirit that's in us and the message that we bring, there's a strong reaction. That's why you may notice about yourself that there can be a strong reaction towards you. And I'm sure you're the nicest, calmest, most pleasant person around, but you have the aroma of a Christ on you. And some people, you smell really good. And other people, you're the smell of death. You remind them that they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So there's a sensitivity. It's like somebody wearing strong cologne. Or strong perfume. There's a reaction. Some, it's like Pepe Le Pew. Ooh, smells so good. Other people, oh man, what, that person has too much cologne on. One more chapter. So he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Why is he saying that? Because he's, his credentials are being challenged. So he's saying, do I, I have to again like give you my resume? Do I have to give you my credentials? Do I have to show you who I am? He, he's just basically saying, that's so ridiculous. You know who I am. He says, or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You, he's saying, are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read 
by all men. In other words, Corinthians, you're our evidence. I don't need to have any papers or degrees or authentication, uh, authentic documentation. He's saying, look, at, look around, you're saved. Before I came, you were going to hell. Now you're going to heaven. That's my commendation. That's my credits. That's all you need to know. He's saying to the Corinthian people, remember who I am. Remember how I came. Remember what I taught you. I didn't do it for any gain of myself. I didn't get rich doing this. In fact, Paul purposely declined taking money for what he was doing there because he knew their hearts. He knew that there's a potential to bring that up against him. So he says in verse 3, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in God working in me, and through me to you and your changed lives. Verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. You see where the confidence is? The confidence will not come if you and I look to ourselves to bring about some sort of harvest or fruit from our walk. We will have no confidence. But when we understand the fruit comes from God working from our life, and that is fully and completely what we can trust in, and that God is fully sufficient. See, a lot of people talk about following the Spirit, but in their actions, they're doing everything but following the Spirit. So when we're following the Spirit, we're just trusting in God and walking in obedience to God and allowing Him to do what He wants with that. And that's the confidence that we have. The confidence to look back and say, I did what I knew the Lord leading me to do, nothing more, nothing less. And you can look back on your life and say, whatever happened, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's talking about the law and the Old Testament which showed us and pointed out to us our sin. couldn't save us, but it can show us we needed to be saved. So the Old Testament, the law, showed us we could not be good enough. The New Testament, Jesus came and was good enough in our place and died and rose again and then gave us the Spirit living inside of us. Verse 7 but if the ministry of death, again, speaking about the Old Testament and the law, written and engraved on stones, the Ten Commandments, 
if that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. So when Moses came down from the presence of God from Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments, he was glowing. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God was on him. But it says it's passing away. In verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For the ministry of uh, condemnation had glory, which the Ten Commandments pointed out we are condemned under the law. If that had glory, the ministry of righteousness, Christ's ministry of forgiveness of sins, of grace, exceeds much more in glory. So he's comparing the Old Testament law or trying to be right with God by works versus being right with God by grace. Verse 11, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So Moses, he wore a veil. Why did he wear a veil? Because the glory that he had being in the presence of God, it was fading away as he got away from God. He didn't want that people to see that glory fading away. But in the New Testament, that glory doesn't fade away, but he's saying here's the secret. The veil is Christ. So that answers the whole problem of why a Jewish person does not come to faith even though they have the Old Testament and they have so much truth and God's been working in their nation and their people for so long, it's not until that veil is removed and the veil is Christ. They'll never see. The Bible tells us one day the whole nation of Israel will see, but they'll see Christ and they'll see their Savior who came and died for their sins. Verse 15, But even to this day when Moses read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, if your face is unveiled because you've turned to Christ, what he's saying is now you see the glory of the Lord in Christ. Beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
In other words, he's saying now the veil's off. But still, we see, but it's not completely clear. And it won't be completely clear until we're face to face with Jesus. And so now, as we live in Christ, we go from glory to glory. We're growing in Him, in the spiritual things. And even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. We're getting stronger in the Spirit, even though we may be getting weaker in the flesh. And He's saying, man, once that veil was removed, once one turns to Christ, everything is made clear. So chapter 4, no, just kidding. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, and I pray that your word would continue to minister to each of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that uh, there are many, many things in here, Lord, for us to camp on, to dwell on, to meditate upon. Lord, you tell us that we are blessed if we meditate on your word day and night. So, Lord, I pray that you continue to Uh, implant your word in our hearts. I pray that our minds would be occupied with the truths of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd bless each that is here listening and those listening online. Bless them abundantly with your presence. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday. All right.